Do you know the story? The bear turned down all the water in the bathroom and flooded out the Ukrainians living downstairs. Skadirik Milkum, Skadirik Milkum. The bam, 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 beating on the landlord's door. Skadirik Milkum. The landlord grabs tools. He lets himself into my place with a pass key and he figures the pipe is burst. Blue, he opens up the door to the bathroom. A bunch of water comes out. He's crawling around on the floor. The bear is up on the shower curtain, like digging him. <laughs> Watching the neon glinting off his giant, shiny bald head. And the bear leaps on the landlord's head. And the landlord looks in the shaving mirror. And here's this beast with the erotic nose on his head. And he goes, vile kangaroo. And I don't know anything about all this. I'm in school writing and studying. I used to keep the bear in the bathroom because the cage was quite small. And that's when the bear, using his long erotic nose, which could slice open a banana like you wouldn't believe, like a rain, like a letter opener. And uh, he turned on all the water in the bathroom, the bear did, and started flooding out the Ukrainians. And that's what brought the landlord up. So I come home from school and I don't know nothing about this, but uh, there's the bear in the corner of the living room rooting. How did the bear get out of the bathroom? I have no idea. The bear shinnied up my side and stuck his nose in my ear and I forgot the question. Welcome to American Prankster, the rivetingly incredible, historically fascinating life story of Wavy Gravy, original beatnik, hippie icon, comedy pioneer, and pioneering activist who uses humor as a weapon. Uh, Is this a true story? Okay. Yes, yes. So, uh, <laughs> I, a couple days later, I come home, and there's this notice in my mailbox, apartment 11 harboring a wild kangaroo. <laughs> so I'm being evicted for a wild kangaroo. So the, the, the two, I'm knocking on the door, I open the door, two police and the landlord, all right, where's the kangaroo? I said, there's no kangaroo. I just got a bear in the other room. Up there, the landlord flips again. It turns out I got to get rid of the bear. Uh, one cop says I got to get rid of the bear. The other cop ain't saying a word because the bear is shitting up his side and is giving him an ear job. He's got this big smile on his face. And uh, well, it turns out I got to get rid of the bear and I give the bear to a private zoo in Fairlawn, New Jersey where they put him in a cage with a bunch of chick bears and he don't even want to say goodbye. Jive bear. Oh, well. Animals. <laughs> what are you going to do? <laughs> where did you get the bear? Oh, this this woman at the neighborhood playhouse had it. It was from uh, the rainforests of Panama and uh, it was a, a Quaddy Monday honey bear. Oh my God, so you had it in your apartment in New York? Yeah, yeah, I was at the neighborhood playhouse then. I'm producer Rainbow Valentine, and in this episode, we get into Wavy's early life in New York City when he became a ground floor beatnik performer at the iconic Gaslight Cafe, where he befriended fellow future icons like Tiny Tim, Lenny Bruce, and Bob Dylan, and weirdly adopted a pet honey bear. So Wavy's pet kangaroo bear story happened around 1960-ish in New York City when Wavy, still Hugh Romney, relocated after Boston University and a short stint in Hartford, Connecticut, where he produced jazz and poetry shows at the Golden Lion. We had this lovely campus on St. Patal Street uh, with gargoyles and ivy and all that. And then the head cheeses of the university came and said, they're not even doing social studies. And they proceeded to move the theater department to the main campus. So the theater teachers all quit because they were hired when what? Uh, oh yes, they got blackballed for some reason because yeah, naughtiness. And that's when all the teachers quit and went to uh, New York City. And fortunately, yeah. they took me with them. So Wavy moves to New York City to study theater at the Neighborhood Playhouse. That was a, a real life changer for me. We left uh, Boston and went to the Neighborhood Playhouse, where I would also get loaded on the roof and go to Martha Graham's dance class because she moved 
with us to the Neighborhood Playhouse. The Neighborhood Playhouse opened in 1915, and its faculty in the 1930s included Sanford Meisner, whose Meisner technique, inspired by Russian theater icon Stanislavski, is studied by theater students around the world. The Neighborhood Playhouse was really where Wavy got comfy in his performer pants. Where I studied acting with David Pressman and dance with Martha and fencing with Rod Polbean, who taught Lawrence Olivier sword fighting. <laughs> it was kind of cool. Okay, Wavy's teacher, David Pressman, was an American director who founded the acting department at Boston University before being blacklisted by McCarthy. Later, he was on the soap opera One Life to Live for 821 episodes from 1971 to 1992. And Rod Colvin was an actor and fencing instructor who also taught Marlon Brando and James Dean and served as Catherine Hepburn's personal masseuse. Thank you, Internet. Oh, one of the great plays that I ever experienced was called Hope is a Thing with Feathers. Who did that play? I was in the Neighborhood Playhouse then. Or, yeah. And uh, I had this character in the play. Oh, yes, this was one of my weird experiments of, of acting is uh, what it would be like to fall asleep on the set and then wake up as the play was in progress into my role. It was very strange, but I did it once is enough. I just fell asleep and then woke up uh, with my line cue. It was the talk about method acting. Jeez. So along with doing theater at the Neighborhood Playhouse, Wavy branches out, performing his own material at New York City coffee houses. And uh, in the evenings, well, I had this poetry that I did in Boston, and I moved it into the coffee house of New York City, eventually landing on the gaslight, where I became an institution. The historic Gaslight Cafe has recently become part of modern pop culture, known as the setting for Mrs. Maisel's early stand-up comedy career in the TV show The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. So my husband left me three months ago for his teenage secretary. However, the other night he came home for some clean underwear and a fuck. (laughs) Actually, just for the underwear. I threw in the fuck for free. That's Mrs. Maisel in the TV version of the Gaslight Cafe, where in real life, Hugh Romney's professional performing career as a beatnik poet took off. Only love upon the universe where Buddha smiled. His mother lived upon the moon and pasted water on his eyes to make them holy. That's Wavy, circa 1963. His father was a mighty star who sometimes laid the sky upon the table of his knees. And here to tell us about the history and significance of Greenwich Village and the Gaslight is our historian, author, counterculture expert, slash former publicist of The Grateful Dead, Dennis McNally. Most of the people that you think of as being part of the 60s got that way by reading the beats. Uh, And you have literally an entire new generation listens to this message and starts following its own path. Many of them go into music like Janice or, or, or Jerry, David Bowie, Dylan, of course. There's this movement. It's anarchic, you know, there's no, there's no plan. The place that has been the, the happy hunting ground for people who don't fit into the mainstream in America, other than San Francisco, which is just sort of weird on the natch, is specifically Greenwich Village in New York City. Greenwich Village has been the home of the people who didn't fit in since at least 1910. Greenwich Village goes all the way back to the 19-teens, when the first people who were against war and and pro-feminist, the history of birth control, uh, Margaret Sanger, takes place in Greenwich Village. You've got left-wing politics up the wazoo. This all goes back to before World I, uh, and we're talking about, about the arrival of the modern, which is to say people at least in art, point to the 1913 Armory Show, which brought the first great wave of European modern art to America. Trivia tidbit. The 1913 Armory Art Show included work by Picasso, Gauguin, Matisse, Cezanne, Van Gogh, and many more. And the people who who wrote 
wrote about it as critics and who appreciated it and loved it were the people who lived in the village. There's two other streams of weirdness treated as a positive, other than the beats. There's the civil rights movement, and then there's folk music. Now, folk music has, since at least 1910, been explicitly associated with left-wing politics, progressive politics. So by the um, late 30s and, and into um, World War II, some of the leaders in that realm are a guy named Woody Guthrie and his protege, Pete Seeger. They uh, form a group called the Almanac Singers uh, during World War II. that eventually turns into the Weavers, uh, who were doing very well commercially, but then they get completely shattered by anti-communist frenzy, a crackdown, mostly connected with Senator Joe McCarthy and the House Un-American Activities Committee, which sort of sanitized thought, or was trying to sanitize thought for uh, America during the 50s. Pete Seeger is not somebody to take that kind of thing laying down. And nobody kind of realizes it, but he starts a folk underground all across America at liberal colleges. So you had Reed in Portland and you had Oberlin in Ohio. And of course you had Greenwich Village. Poets and philosophers have always flocked to the village. Here Joe Gould wrote, in the winter I'm a Buddhist, in the summer I'm a nudist. One of those places, uh, there were a number of folk clubs. They had different le levels of professionalism so that you had clubs uh, where the performers got paid and you have what they called basket houses. Basket houses were places where they played, you know, three songs and then they'd pass the hat or the basket. The village is the last remaining training ground for young talent. Virtually every successful performer has played here sometime. And when Bob Dylan came from Minnesota to New York in January of 1961, because he was a young folk singer and where else were you gonna go? The first place he landed was the Gaslight. Now, the Gaslight was being booked by a guy named uh, John Cohen. And the uh, master of ceremonies was a guy named Hugh Romney. And in fact, had a room upstairs, which uh, included a typewriter that young Bob Dylan would type on and type the final version of Tambourine, uh, Tambourine Man on it. He was born in Duluth, but his family lived up in a little mining town. He said he ran away from home 17 times and got brought back 16. At any rate, I don't think anybody needs to talk for him if Bob Dylan is within hearing distance. You are sitting back there. Yes, yes. <laughs> I hear you well. <laughs> Hey, Mr. Tambourine Man. Please play a song for me. Coffee houses, the neighborhood bars of Bohemia, where the strongest potion is coffee, and the coffee house poet is the specialty of the house. So the Gaslight Cafe changed Wavy's life and the culture of American live performance history. Yeah, tell us about the Gaslight. Well, the Gaslight was on 116 McDougal Street, and uh, downstairs was the club. And upstairs, I had this little room where, uh, well, Bob Dylan wrote the song about the pot-bellied stove, and if we all get together again, he'd give $10,000 at the drop of a hat. Not very likely, Bob. Bob is kind of stingy with the old do-re-mi. But anyhow, Hard Rain's Gonna Fall was actually written on my typewriter on, in that little room, and the gaslight was really quite wonderful. Hey, and that's where the snapping of fingers first developed. Because otherwise, the Italians would throw uh, stale cannolis down the air shaft. So we could not applaud. So we had to snap our fingers. And that was the beginning 
of thinker-snapping in the free world for audience appreciation. But it started out in the gaslight. Snap, snap, snap. Otherwise, you could get hit with a sail cannoli. So uh, we did that. People found it to be delightful. I thought it was kind of stupid. I preferred the applause, but uh, oh well. <laughs> Along with Bob Dylan, Wavy honed his craft alongside artists like American folk and blues singer Maria Muldar, famous for Midnight at the Oasis, which reached number six on the Billboard Hot 100 in 1974. And later she sang back up with the Grateful Dead. When she was like 12 or 13, she was very enamored with this young poet named Bob Lupin. And I called her Maria D'Amato, the singing tomato. And uh, when she uh, was very enamored uh, with the Jim Question Jug Band, and Jeff Maldar of the Jug Band was her squeeze. He said Dave Van Ronk was at the Gaslight performing. David Van Ronk, known as the mayor of McDougal Street, was an American folk singer who presided over the folk music scene of the village, mentoring up-and-coming musicians. And he was one of the 13 people arrested in the 1969 Stonewall riots in Greenwich Village, which is credited as the start of the gay rights movement in America. David Van Ronk died in 2002. And of course, Bob. Speaking of American folk icon slash Nobel Prize winner in literature, Bob Dylan, let's go back to author, historian, counterculture expert, Dennis McNally. Wavy, then as now, was a very nurturing personality, a very positive personality, very daffy and very, you know, uh, very much embracing not being mainstream, but very tender and very and very caring. So that even people as sort of legendarily difficult. Bob Dylan was not your average guy. I think it would be fair to call him moody. And yeah, no, difficult. And just coming from a very challenging place. The fact is that from when he got to New York until 1966, in those five years, there's a famous poem, uh, My Candle Burns at Both Ends, It Will Not Last the Night, something, 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 but oh, what a lovely light. That's by another village poet by the name of Edna St. Vincent Millay back in the 20s or 30s. And he was burning his candle at both ends. One of the most inspired people in America. Um, and everything he did was almost, was truly amazing. And one of his refuges was Mr. Romney's room. Well, I sung you my song, it ain't very long, about an old man who never done wrong. How he died, one couldn't see. Found him dead in the street one day. That's Bob Dylan live at the Gaslight, 1961. And people would write a song up top in the little room upstairs and then run downstairs and perform it for the people and uh, everybody would snap <laughs> and it was really quite thrilling now along with attracting a lineup of future superstars the gaslight was a magnet for the current stars of the day and also you know who used to come down and see me is marlena dietrich he called me naughty lola the wisest girl on earth at home my pianola Marlena Dietrich, an actress and singer with a career from 1910 to the 1980s, was a German-American bombshell who started her career on the Berlin stage before moving to silent films and then talkies, gaining international fame as Lola in Blue Angel. My boys all love my music. I can't keep them away. So my little pianola keeps working night and day. Marlena Dietrich's opposition to Hitler led her films to be banned in Germany, and she became an American citizen in 1939. By the early 1960s, she was a big fan of the gaslight and wavy. She gave me Rilke, the poems of uh, Rilke, which I still have somewhere in my existence. I mean, she used to come in from time to time. And, uh, oh, the, the wonderful story is uh, that the owner of the gaslight, it's a full-on lunatic of wonder named John Mitchell, 
was a Marlena Dietrich uh, junkie. And Marlena Dietrich left a lipstick blot on her espresso cup. And John picked it up like, you know, the grail. And he put it in this little uh, glass case on the wall of the gaslight. And that night the uh, dishwasher came in and thought it was dirty and he washed it. And John went crazy and grabbed a Civil War sword off the wall and chased the guy down McDougal Street screaming, Just let me in his eyes! Wanting to saw the dishwasher in two for washing Marlena lipstick off of the espresso cup, which I thought was hilarious. He also had a big dog named Linus, who even had a thing on the menu at Ice Cream Sunday called Shut Up Linus. And John would always get into fights, and uh, Linus would be fighting. And I remember one time Linus bit John, and John stopped the fight, grabbed Linus by the jowls, and said, Don't bite me, bite the enemy. <laughs> oh, God, I hadn't thought of that in a hundred million years. Don't bite me, bite the enemy. What an unusual man. He eventually told on the police for taking bribes and had to leave for Ireland or something. And, Wait, he, uh, he, he told the police that the police were taking bribes? He told the press that the police were taking bribes. And his partner, Al Maggi, from the mafia, came down to the gaslight. He was all covered with hives. Because John spilled the beans and he apparently had a contract on him and he used to come down and say, hey, keep writing them poems. And he would be always accompanied by his bodyguard, whose name was Arm. It was a giant of a guy that only had one arm. He also was uh, packing a pistol that you could see the hilt of it uh, bulging through his costumery. Did you have any run-ins with Arm? No, 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 no. I just kept writing them poems. Yes, sir, Al. <laughs> In these years, Wavy embarks on his little spoken of first marriage. We were married at the gaslight. The strangest thing that... Uh my mom experienced in our life was when she came to the gaslight when I was married to the French girl by Reverend Gary Davis. Reverend Gary Davis, also known as Blind Gary Davis, was a blues and gospel singer and musician whose finger-picking banjo style influenced musicians like the Grateful Dead and Bob Dylan, who both covered his songs. If I had my way, if I had my And I don't know. Everybody was there, though. There was Dylan and Ben Rock and the whole uh, folk music, Tommy Paxton and the whole folk music scene. And uh, the Rev had us go out and get a slab of wood to stand on for the ceremony. Uh, he said, otherwise our children could be born blind. <laughs> so we stood on wood, and I think he brought inadvertently Peter Rabbit, and he winged it. And he said, sleep tight, but don't bite. And that was basically it. Oh, sang uh, Just a Closer Walk With Thee. And it was phenomenal with everybody singing. My mom was there and utterly horrified. Never saw anything like that before in her life. And uh, that was just my friends. Ah! We uh, moved to Queens and I commuted and it, it just did not work. It was not it. This was an error, and I don't know how I wiggled out of this, but, and we had a child too. My wonderful uh, daughter, Sabrina, who I'm great buddies with. She lives in Atlanta, Hotlanta. So, uh, So around this time, Wavy embarks on his lifelong benevolent generosity. Yes, and Len Chandler and I would drive around in his motorbike with capes that his wife made. Len Chandler, born in 1935 and still alive as of this recording, is an American folk musician who became involved in the civil rights and environmental movements, singing at demonstrations. He's known as a protest songwriter. My name is Len Chandler. The police on the horses, the waiting on command, riding through the strikes with a billy in each hand, swinging at the heads of every union man. As we started building links, 
On the chain, on the chain, sing it with me. As we started building links on the chain. And we'd pull up to some drunk passed out on the street and we'd stuff his pockets with money with dollar bills that we had too many of from reading our poetry and seeing folk songs. So I think we became quite legendary. Every now and then they would regain consciousness and see us doing it and word spread. <laughs> it was strange but true. What are you, was that your first philanthropic activity? Yeah, I think so. I think so, yeah. So yeah, it was, it was great fun too. During these Gaslight Cafe years, Wavy befriends another oddball performer, the hero to ukulele enthusiasts everywhere, Tiny Tim. Oh, The offspring of an Eastern European mom and Lebanese dad, Tiny Tim, born Herbert Boutros Corey, was a musical prodigy obsessed with a phonograph who discovered his famed falsetto by singing along with Rudy Valley on the radio. Wavy, my mom told me to ask you about Tiny Tim. That's a good one. Tiny Tim, I first ran into at the Page 3. The Page 3 was a lesbian bar in Greenwich Village that hired Tiny Tim, then going by the name Larry Love, to perform. It was one of his first paying gigs, and he developed a cult following. Now, according to internet lore, the manager of the Page 3 sought to rename Larry Love Sir Timothy Thames, and the two eventually settled on Tiny Tim. The Page 3 opened in the 1940s and closed in 1965. Where he was doing his stuff for, uh, oh God, what's that guy's name? From the Page 3, anyhow, I thought, holy smoke, this guy is a descent. I called him a descent into the cathedral of the Philco Radio. I'm glad I went and bought a brand new Philco. Everywhere you find that Philco is the word. Yes, the word. It's the best ever heard. Philco radios are the old-fashioned radios that look like European cathedrals like Notre Dame. And I, I snatched him up, took him to the gaslight. From the garden, by the garden, on the willow tree, from tiptoe, through the tulip, with me. All right, we're going to go back in time when you were doing the movie Fat Black Pussycat. Time marches on. The Fat Black Pussycat was a coffee house that was uh, established across the street from the gaslight. And prior to it becoming the Fat Black Pussycat, it was called the Commons. A very uh, normal name till John Mitchell bought the darn thing and changed it into the Fat Black Pussycat. And it had a lovely little theater and performances would occur. What was the question? They made a movie. According to Wikipedia, there was a movie or in. Oh, yeah, yeah, sure. They, that was in a million movies, but that one, God, I can't remember much about it. I certainly remember the Fat Black Pussycat, and I remember going over there with... Uh... So the Fat Black Pussycat was once a coffee shop where Wavy's chum Bob Dylan wrote Blown in the Wind. Today, the Fat Black Pussycat is the sister showroom to the world-famous Comedy Cellar Comedy Club in New York City. But in the early 1960s, the Fat Black Pussycat was a venue for beatnik performers who were blazing the trail for today's comedians. Yes, yes, we, we were doing uh, this show, uh, this review I put together called The Phantom Cabaret. And it was with me and Tiny Tim and Moondog. Moondog was a blind musician-composer-inventor who wore a signature Viking helmet and cloak and performed on Manhattan street corners for over 25 years. He died in 1999. Here's Moondog. The song goes on like this for a while. 
Anyway, back to Wavy's story about the Phantom Cabaret with Moondog and Tiny Tim. And uh, we opened at the Fat Black Pussycat, and people could not believe their eyes, ears, nose, and throat. It was uh, an astounding, uh, resounding hit, and we got in the front page of the New York Times and uh, the Village Voice and all that stuff. And then the next day, the place got sealed for back taxes. And there was a lock on the door. So uh, Stephen Ben-Israel, who was a friend of mine and a member of the cast of the Living Theater, said, well, you maybe could do it at our place. The, the Becks have been kicked out of a million places, I'm sure. Julian Beck and Judith Molina, who ran the Living Theater on 6th Avenue, and they said, yeah, we've been kicked out of a lot of places. Why don't you come do your show at midnight after our show called The Brig, about a Marine Corps brig, is over with. And the whole front of the stage is covered with barbed wire, which is totally appropriate. And then at midnight, everybody would go, bong, bong. And we'd be going for 12, but we could do 5 or 30, depending on... Uh, vegetables that we inhale could be a lot of bombs and then tiny tim would tiptoe out with this shopping bag in the shopping bag was his little ukulele and uh, he would tiptoe through the tulips and it was quite extraordinary and he would do like Bing crosby and rudy valley and one time he said oh mr rudy valley came inside and he wouldn't leave he said to me <laughs> I've lost my Crosby power. Oh, my Lord. And then I go out in the middle, and then uh, Moondog was the closer. I found a review of the Phantom Cabaret from 1963 New York Times, and I asked Wavy to read it. The fat black gang, consisting of the famed Moondog, Hugh Romney, and Tiny Tim, or T.T. Hugh and Moon, as they're known on McDougal Street do make you feel uh, you've dropped into the lower depths from time to time. But when you realize it's your standard or reality you're doubting, then uh, more power to them. For unlike the random ravings of Bedlam, there's device, focus, and much tragic comedy meaning. That's all, folks. You had to be there, and I was, so so were they. And it was uh, a glorious uh, time. What happened? Oh, yeah. Tiny Tim, he was going to uh, come from New York to uh, San Francisco to do a show with us. Okay, Wavy has jumped ahead to San Francisco, where he moved after New York City. We were meeting him at the train station with a Rolls Royce full of daffodils. When the telegram came, sorry, I can't come. My mother won't let me. <laughs> so that was horrible. And we replaced him with Elmer Snowden, who used to banjo for Bessie Smith, but it didn't work. And we folded up the Phantom Cabaret and went our separate ways. And then uh, he did come. And it was uh, to uh, L.A. when we had the house on Lemon Grove, where we were doing the acid tests and all. Now, Wavy has jumped ahead about four years to L.A., where he moves after San Francisco, which is after his gaslight New York City years. However, this is another great Tiny Tim story, so I had to put it here. And we would do uh, also the Phantom Cabaret with Tiny and me and Severin Darden and Del Close, but not Moondog anymore. He didn't like what I was saying about the president, and he thought Tiny Tim was a sissy, so we dumped him and uh, pressed on. Severin Darden and Del Close are two icons of American comedy history who Wavy became close to in San Francisco, where he moves after New York City. Now, I mentioned Severin Darden in the last episode. He played Colt in the Planet of the Apes movies. Now, Del Close was an iconic American improviser and author of Truth in Comedy, the Bible for comedy improvisers. Now, Del and Severin were two of Wavy's best friends, and we'll get more into them later. For now, back to Tiny Tim and Wavy. Tiny Tim. I used to have to get him Poland water. It was in his rider. He had to have Poland water. But just, oh, I'll tell you a great show. In our, in our last uh, show at the ranch market, Tiny Tim used to go after every show to the ranch market. Okay, the ranch market is in L.A. 
Tiny Tim and Wavy are doing the Phantom Cabaret with Del Close and Severin Darden in L.A. circa 1965 or 66. Tiny Tim used to go after every show to the ranch market and buy like 13 cans of Popeye spinach. And take them back to our house and ingest them in his room all by himself. And uh, the last night of our show, the ranch market, a special deal, put Tiny Tim on the PA. And he sang these great Rudy Valley songs. It was really wonderful. When you're blue and nothing left to do, a little smile will go a long, long way. Why, when you're down, don't hang around and frown. A little smile will go a long, long way. One time I got to drive with Tiny to the Cloisters with Neil Cassidy. The Cloisters are a branch of the Met Museum composed of four cloister buildings that were dismantled in Europe in the 1930s and moved to New York City. And Tiny and Neil would sing Bing Crosby duets as we drove along. And Neil Cassidy was a famous original beatnik and certified crazy person. Oh, Mr. Cassidy, not so fast. When the blues of the nine. <laughs> oh, God, it was just... Neil Cassidy was part of Ken Kesey's commune, The Merry Pranksters, and we'll get more into The Pranksters later. Speeding along. Oh, Mr. Cassidy, please watch where you're going. Ah! The wheel, the wheel. It was extraordinary. And then we got to the cloisters. When the sun comes over the moon. It was just so good and amazing and wonderful. It's noteworthy that Wavy was friends with Neil Cassidy during this time, 1962, 63-ish. And, uh, but, oh yes, we had to take uh, Tiny, we had to kidnap him because he was in the clutches of the mafia or a similar organization. And he was being guarded by Mr. Rocco. So we had to wait till Mr. Rocco fell asleep. And Severin and I stole him and took him to the cloisters for sunrise. Wait, he was and part of the mafia? Yeah, the, the mafia took him over. Mr. Rocco. I remember <laughs> driving to the cloisters. Who was driving? Maybe Brent or somebody, and I was there, and whoever it was, and him, maybe Dell, somebody, and Tiny Tim, they were seeing Bing Crosby duets as we drove along the West Side Highway to the cloisters. For the uh, sunrise, it was pretty wonderful. I'm dreaming of a white Christmas Just like the ones I used to know It's amazing. I've been listening to Tiny Tim. Oh, God, he made to start with. It was this little 12-inch record, like you make it 42nd Street. You pay like $10 and you make a little record. And he recorded a bunch of songs. And I played it for Lenny Bruce. And Lenny Bruce fell in love with... And he played this. Oh, this is when he, he broke his leg, which is kind of like my fault. Ah, Lenny Bruce. He was a stand-up comedian known for vulgar satire, criticizing religion and politics, and openly talking about sex on stage. Shocking at the time. The bust. What I got arrested for in San Francisco. <laughs> San Francisco, I got arrested for, uh, what I think, we can hear that, Daddy. Um, I'm not going to repeat the word because I want to finish the gig here tonight. It's, uh, uh, they said it was, it was vernacular for a favorite homosexual practice, a ten-letter word. Uh, it's really chic. There's two four-letter words in a preposition. <laughs> I can't, uh, I wish I could tell you the word. It uh, starts with a C. When you know the word is. Now, it's weird how they manifested that word as homosexual. Because I don't. That relates to any contemporary chick I know or would know or would love or would marry, you know. Is this when you met Lenny Bruce? Oh, no. Lenny, I met, yeah, kind of in that time. Uh, he was at the Village Vanguard, and I would go there from time to time and worship and adore him. So the Village Vanguard is a jazz club on 7th Avenue in New York City that opened in 1935 by Max Gordon, a Russian-born immigrant who moved to the U.S. in 1908 when he was five. The Village Vanguard originally was a place for poetry and folk music, but by 1957 became primarily a jazz spot, with occasional comedians like Wavy's friend Lenny Bruce. I went to see him with my French wife, 
who got Lenny's attention. That's how she got my attention to start with, especially in a bikini. Then uh, left uh, divorced from the French girl. I really thought I wanted one of those. I mean, she talked to the French accent, and I thought, oh, that is it. That's the... But fortunately, I outgrew it <laughs> and ran into my current wife, and we've been married about a half a century. Okay, we're going to get more into Wavy's relationship with Lenny Bruce in the next couple of episodes. But for now, let's go back to the Gaslight Cafe. What happened next? Uh, one thing after another. I'm working. Uh, oh, yeah, well- this guy saw me uh, in between poems. I would make up stuff. And this guy came down to the Gaslight and said, skip the poems. Just make up stuff. And he put me in a suit and started to mail me around the country. And next thing you know, I'm opening for John Coltrane and Thelonious Monk. I'm not making this up. It was absolutely true and phenomenal. John Coltrane, born in 1926, died of liver disease in 1967, was an American jazz saxophonist and composer who rose to fame with a bebop scene after serving in the U.S. Navy. Now, Thelonious Monk, born in 1917, died in 1982, was an American jazz pianist and composer and also a bebop pioneer. And we went from uh, one place to the next. So Wavy, who'd been infatuated with the beboppers since his teen years, is now living his dream, opening for his heroes. Not always with monks, sometimes with a folk uh, contingent called Ian and Sylvia, who were really quite wonderful, and you ought to check them out sometime. They're Canadian. They wrote the song Four Strong Winds, which is the anthem of that country. Well, speaking of memories, here's one. Four strong winds that The same year JFK is assassinated, U.S. zip codes are introduced, and Beatlemania sweeps the globe. Let's see, one thing led to another. First opening for Ian and Sylvia, and then Peter, Paul, and Mary. In fact, I did Peter, Paul, and Mary's first gig at the uh, bitter end on Bleecker Street. Peter, Paul, and Mary were a folk-singing trio, part of the Gaslight scene who formed in 1961 after auditioning for Albert Grossman, the manager who was also the manager of Bob Dylan. Their biggest hits are Puff the Magic Dragon, Where Have All the Flowers Gone, and Leaving on a Jet Plane. And it was them being enamored with me that when we went to Washington, D.C., that I was swept up in their entourage and ended up on stage, maybe 25 feet from Martin Luther King when he started to say, I have a dream. That was an extraordinary, great moment of my life, yes. Grass. <laughs> and they, they busted the police in Denver, Colorado. <laughs> Got these new police. Terrible, terrible cats in heavy leather boots walking down the street. Doberman pinch your dogs. Value your paper! <laughs> Cats come on so strong, I give them my zigzag, spend the weekend slam. <laughs> these cops, these, these cops were so bad, they went out and they busted a junior high school model airplane club and confiscated all their glue. <laughs> That's an excerpt from Third Stream Humor, Hugh Romney's spoken word comedy album from 1963. So wait here. First album was called Third Stream Humor. Do you remember anything from that album, or can you tell us about making that album? Recite any Third Stream Humor? <laughs> it's a, what, a, what an idiotic title. Okay, the term Third Stream was coined in 1957 during an academic lecture and refers to a style of music combining classical and jazz. It is the year 
of the gopher. So the title of Wavy's first album, which he might find stupid, reflects the roots of his spoken word inspired by jazz and created to pair with jazz. And on the banks of the Yellow River, on the edge of a small teak forest, there's a bamboo cottage. And inside the bamboo cottage, there lives an old man whose name was Mr. Chan. Mr. Chan was a gatherer and carver of teak. He made statues and boxes. And every morning, he would go out into the teak forest to gather teak. And with him, he always carried this big blunderbuss rifle. And the reason he carried this big blunderbuss rifle was in the teak forest, there did lurk a horrible... Dreadful beast of a bear. A bear. So strange. A bear with the feet of a young boy. Uh, it was World Pacific. I knew that much. And they also recorded Paul Horn, great trumpet player. <laughs> and it was produced by Jim Dixon, who also uh, put together The Birds with Jim Gwynn and David Crosby. And an awesome assemblage of Graham Parsons also yeah, yeah, was part of that. It was, it was quite a thing. And Jim knew my history and was able to press my buttons. And when <laughs> uh, my button was pressed, I would spew whatever that was. And uh, a bunch of it ended up on the album. I will tell you of the dream, of the kaleidoscope of plastic religion, of the carnival midway to possible salvation announced by the voice. Promoter crooning in my ear, babbling in breathless excitement, Mabelland! Mabelland! Gigantic! Thrilling! Exciting, uh, spectacular, beautiful Bible Land. <laughs> For a treasure and memento of your day at Bible Land, photographic booths will be available, enabling you to take home a colorful picture of you and the missus walking on water, on a camel, following the star, or seated at the Last Supper. That's a rare clip from The Gaslight in 1961 of comedian John Brent. John Brent and I were the uh, poetry directors and I would read my poetry. One of the most influential humans in Wavy's life and one of Wavy's best friends. John Brent is uh, possibly uh, the most amazing person I've ever known in my life. And many people would say the same. John, <laughs> come back. I miss you so so in the next episode, we're headed to San Francisco 1964-ish when Hugh Romney joins the iconic committee improv comedy troupe reveling in absurdist satire. The department was a, a madras jacket that had seen better days, but it was excellent uh, to sew salami onto. And psychedelic shenanigans. Psychedelica. A North Beach. He would take fake birds and cut them open and put dope inside them and sew them up again and nail them to, like to Woodstock. What, was it Owlsley acid? Yes, of course. Want to hear a, a poem? Let's do an easy one. This one, partly for Ja. Sometimes when sleep is an ocean, I row a small creaky boat and the stars are everywhere. I follow the brightest star to an amazing island of high green forests and dancing sunlight. Sunlight that carries my eyes to the edge of a blue spring. And as I go to drink the taste of clear water, I see that a single horn has grown my forehead 
and my reflected motion is carried on four legs. A young girl then appeared with a basket of love. She wore no shoes, and we talked of many things, but mostly we watched the green forest sift and gather the sun as veins of purple bunched the sky. I laid a small pile of words at the feet of the young girl. I love, I love you. I love you more than the wonderful horn which has grown the center of my forehead. And I broke off the horn on a hard rock and laid it at the feet of the young girl on top of all my words. I told her to never leave me and we would watch the green forest change as many times as many. She smiled placed my horn in her basket of love and fed me her eyes on a blue plate. And when I had finished, the girl was gone, leaving an ocean in her footsteps. And I am swallowed by an ocean sometimes. Snap, 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 otherwise you could get hit with a sail cannoli. <laughs> so, uh, the, the, when the, they were having the missile crisis, uh, Mike Wallace came down to the gaslight with their whole TV team. And one of the cameramen, or my God, he fed her his eyes on a blue plate. <laughs> The Cuban Missile Crisis? Mike Wallace and his crew came down to... Yeah, they were down shooting in the gaslight when that happened. American Pranksters, executive produced by Rainbow Valentine Studios, Eric Hober, Larry and Gertrude, Brilliant God and Company, Thessaly Lerner, Rainbow Valentine, and Wavy Gravy, and sponsored by Levy Informatics at levyinformatics.com. Episode 3, written, edited, produced, and scored by Thessaly Lerner, with original music by Will Collins and Hope for a Golden Summer. Mixed and mastered by Ryan Reeves, narrated by Rainbow Valentine. Associate producers are Sage Lee and Brian Slusher, Trina Calderon, Zappo Dickinson, Jundid, Sykes, Johanna Romney, and Mark Margolis. Logo by Jordan Paisno. Special thanks to our Episode 3 guest, Dennis McNally. Plus, appreciation for all the Do-Re-Mi budget donors, our partners at Pantheon Podcasts, and you, our listener, and the incomparable Wavy Gravy. For more info, go to wavygravy.net or rainbowvalentine.com. Raise a glass to the downfall of evil and towards the fun. Mwahaha.